Good morning. That's good morning in Dutch. Dutch people say good morning very similarly to in English. It's just more spitty. It's a little more guttural. Good morning. Sounds like you're about to spit. So anyway, um, on to the relevant topic. Uh, my name is Phil. If you don't know me, I'm one of the teachers on the teaching team here um, at Fold. My regular job is working for a commercial landscaping company. So if you need advice about trees or shrubs, uh, feel free to talk to me about that. Um, <laughs> but this morning, I get to share um, from God's Word on a very difficult topic <laughs> to talk about. So we're in our elephant hunting series and uh, in our elephant hunting series, we are taking on uh, the toughest topics, right? Um, and you know why we're doing that? Because for many generations, churches did not do that, right? I used to be in college ministry, and in some ways, I was trying to reach out to a generation of, you know, millennials at the time and some nexters, you know, who, you know, came up in homes where, you just didn't ask questions. You just didn't deal with tough topics. You just kind of fell in line. You know, I listened to a podcast this week, um, a great podcast some friends of mine are doing called Tattoos and Jesus. And um, last week they were talking to a guy who had fallen out of faith and he just talked about how, you know, when he grew up, they never talked about tough topics and and, you know, he felt like he had to choose one day. It was like an either or. He was either going to be in the kingdom or out of it. And there was no room to dialogue what it looked like to live the Christian life in some of the difficult areas. Um, my topic this morning um, that I've been given so graciously by CJ, Pastor CJ, is racism. Um, I'm thankful that, you know, this isn't the first time, you know, that, um, I've had the opportunity to speak on or have a discussion or a dialogue about racism um, in many ways, and, and maybe you feel the same. I feel like it's, it's more difficult right now than it was two years ago, five years ago. There's just an environment right now that, um, for good and bad reasons, you know, where, I mean, just emotional fires are being lit and resentment is being lit. And, and I look at politicians and leaders and I feel like, man, you guys are highly educated, I think. Do you remember this thing of the circle of violence? You know, like if all you do is, 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 is talk bad, if all you do is take swipes, people swipe back, you know, if... So somebody has to bring unity into the discussion. Someone has to bring peace into the discussion. Someone needs to bring a biblical perspective into the discussion. And this is just my viewpoint. I don't intend to get political. Um, if I've done my job correctly, personally, you have no idea what my politics are. <laughs> it's on purpose. Because it's not, it's not the banner I wave. I want to wave the banner of Jesus Christ, Lord of all. I don't want to wave any other banner not, then that banner, not a political banner, not a denominational banner, just not interested. But I will say this, I feel like right now, politically speaking, there, there, there are fires being lit on both sides of the issue, on both sides of the aisle. And as sick as it sounds, there are people who profit from us being more divided than unified. 
on both sides. I, I would throw equal guilt <laughs> in all directions. And I'm going to throw some guilt in my direction before we're done today. But it's, we live in a very divided world. And it's not too hard for the world to get to this place. Because it's actually our human bent to judge others through our respective lenses. You know, teenagers, I think, get this, but I think we all get it a little bit. Like, we think that our lives are a movie in which we are the star and everybody else plays a supporting role. <laughs> and because we view it that way, we tend to think our perspectives are always the right ones. The way we see things is always the correct way to view things. Everyone sees life the way I see life. That's what we think. And when we see someone or we interact with somebody who sees life from a different lens than us, we tend to judge. And we don't usually judge ourselves as incorrect, <laughs> right? We usually judge everybody else as incorrect. You know, I see a lot of well-meaning people on Facebook saying things. I'm like, that is so wrong. <laughs> you can't, you shouldn't think that way. You can't talk that way. But I know what the issue is, 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 is that's what happens when you stick your head in the sand and the only perspective you know is your own. So it's easy for us to get there. And we all have lenses through which we view and judge life and we judge other people. A lot of that comes from our past, our past experiences, right? Lead us to make judgments about people. And sometimes we hold those same viewpoints for all of our lives. Sometimes we just can't shake it. Sometimes we're so stubborn we can't be taught something different. I think that's a dried up granola bar. Um, if I get hungry, I'll come back to that. <laughs> but sometimes we run into a collusion course with an event or a person that causes us to reevaluate our perspective and to see things differently. Um, and this issue of racial injustice, man, I, I, I moved all over the place in America. You know, I've lived in New York. I've lived in Texas. I've lived all up in between there. Um, and I spent a lot of my younger years here in South Carolina, and I've seen a lot of racist things and heard a lot of racist things. And I will go ahead and tell you my view on this. Racism is very much alive today. Systematic racism is very much alive today. I, I hear and see it every day. It's a, it's a, it's a problem and there's been some events in my life that have helped shape my perspective, to, in a, I think in a good way, to help me kind of get outside of myself and my past to see things from other people's perspectives. One of them is being a foster dad. You know, Corey and I have been foster parents for, I don't know, eight, eight-ish years, you know? And gosh, when you're foster parenting, you... You, you, you get, get, it's not a privilege. <laughs> you get to see the worst out there, man. You're like, people treat their kids that way? Really? Like, we're not talking about some third world country we're talking about right here? You mean like on the north side of Spartanburg? Like, people are living with holes in their floor and no door on their house? 
I had no idea, you know? But we've also fostered children from different ethnicities and races, and that's been very eye-opening. You know, at one point we had um, Joe Vaughn and Joan Ivy, a couple boys who were with us who um, were black, and, and I, I can tell you right now, we would go to the grocery store and all of our children would be raising hell, right? But you could just tell that people noticed Joe Vaughn more than they noticed Corbin and Silas. Like, I, I could see that, and I could notice that, and it bothered me. You know? It happens. Let me, let me tell you how I know that there's white privilege. I'm just going to be honest. I know that because of the color of my skin, the way that I dress, you know, I look like I'm a 55-year-old, I don't know what, you know, retiree. I'm only, I'm turning 43 in two days, so I'm not as old as I look. I never have to be concerned when I get pulled over by the police. Ne it never crosses my mind. My greatest fear with getting pulled over is that I will be ticketed. Right? But that's not true if you're black in America. That's not true if you're Hispanic in America. It's not true. You know, my black friends have to teach their kids, you know, and we learned about this when we, were, when we have kids in our home who are black as well, because it's like, you, you've got to raise your sons to realize that if they're not careful, something bad can happen to them by means of law enforcement. But it's not, it's, guys, it's not the same if you're white. And that's, that's wrong. It's wrong. So I'm not here to throw out a bunch of white guilt and just be like, hey, you guys all suck. I suck. Let's just all suck. But listen, if you have a place that gives you some more privilege if it's, and it's wrong, use that privilege to the benefit of others. Use that privilege to be a voice to say this is wrong, this needs to change, and be a part of the change, right? I took a little tangent there, but I think it was worth while, but I've learned a lot from being a foster dad. <laughs> I got to emcee the Martin Luther King Day Unity Celebration in Spartanburg a few years ago, um, which was very cool for me. It was I had to buy a black tie outfit because I did not have one. Um, and I got to meet Erica Campbell from Mary Mary, which was very, very cool. And she got to meet like a version of Frodo Baggins in a black tie, you know, get a picture taken with me. It was, I'm sure it was a privilege for her as well. Um, <laughs> But that was one of the greatest privileges of my life, to be invited to be a part of that celebration, celebrating the life of a man and legacy of a man who managed to make a huge difference in the fight against racism and to do it peacefully and with very Christ-centered words. I also have a picture of some friends of mine to put up. Oh, that's okay, so don't worry about it. Um, I also, um, I have some friends that I get to hang out with sometimes, Milford Brock, and he's an African-American pastor in the Spartanburg community, incredible guy. Pastor Greg is a his Hispanic pastor in the Spartanburg community, and uh, 
the Reverend Rabbi Andy Meyerson, who's a Messianic Jewish rabbi in the Spartanburg community, very close friends of mine, that I've had a lot of very deep, like very serious conversations about racism with, and I've learned a lot. You know, if, if you want to change, the best thing to do is to have open ears and listen to people whose lives are different from yours and take it in, you know, and, and to listen. So these are some guys who've changed my life. This is some of how Phil's perspective has developed over years regarding racial prejudice that is alive and well in our community. But today... I really want to focus on the Bible because I feel like there's a lot being said, and I just said a lot, but what we need most of all is to really understand where God is on an issue like racial prejudice and where the, what the Bible teaches us about racial prejudice. So that's the road we're going to go down. Get your Bible ready or your phone, uh, your Bible app ready, um, and you may have to just, I encourage you to write down some passages if you don't get to turn to them fast enough because I want you to be able to eat lunch, <clears throat> so um, I might go a little bit fast. But I want to start with a few questions. Number one, does the Bible teach racial prejudice? This is a for real question. It's a for real question. It doesn't get answered a lot, so let's, let's look at it. We've got this whole thing in the whole Old Testament. You've got this nation of Israel who's chosen by God and favored by God. Is that or is that not Racial prejudice. Right? I mean, if God can choose a people and say they're better, why can't my race be the better one? <laughs> why can't I show favoritism? If God has favorites, shouldn't we? Guys, and you may think, you may be sitting here right now like, that's the dumbest question ever. Of course not, right? But for generations... People have been misused and mistreated on arguments like that. Ignorance about the Bible. Ignorance about God's call. But here's what we have to know in the Old Testament about Israel's chosenness. The purpose of the chosenness of Israel was as a starting point to bring God's love to all people. The chosenness of Israel as God's people culminated in the chosenness of all who believe. That's what the Bible teaches. Listen to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. This is the Abrahamic covenant for you nerds out there. I will make you into a great nation. It's God talking to Abraham. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What's God's intention in blessing Abraham? Who is it for? The whole world. Listen to Isaiah chapter 56, verse 6. It says, And the foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. He's talking about people who are not Jewish who are coming to have a relationship with God. He says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in, the, in my house of prayer. 
Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Where have we heard that referenced in the New Testament? Do you recall? In the cleansing of the temple. You remember that part? (laughs) Where Jesus, like, he doesn't just buy a whip, he makes one. And then he walks into the temple and he starts whipping at people and chasing them out and throwing tables over. We thought that was about money, but it's about more than money. You remember what Jesus said? This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He wasn't just mad about how they were using money. He wasn't mad about the socioeconomic abuse going on in the Jewish community in Jerusalem. He was upset that they were making it difficult for people who were not Jewish to come worship God. And God is like, you knuckleheads, that's the whole point. What are you doing? Isaiah 49 verse 6 says this, Is it too small a thing for you to be my servant and to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept? I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. It's very important for us to recognize that the chosenness of Israel in the Old Testament was so that Israel could be a conduit through which the love of God could pour out to the entire world. World, God does not show favoritism. God loves everyone. In the New Testament, guys, I, I, you probably, how many of you have read Philemon? Anybody? <laughs> Most people haven't. But, you know, if you haven't, you should. It's very, very short, okay? It's very short. But basically, it's a letter from Paul uh, to this guy Philemon who has a runaway slave named Onesimus. Okay, so picture this. Paul is on the mission field, and he runs into this guy by happenstance. I don't think so. Onesimus, who's a runaway slave from a guy that Paul knows and that Paul led to Christ. Okay, this is one of those God moments. Right? So Paul is like, okay, Onesimus, you stay here with me. And let me seek God to figure out the best way to handle this situation with Philemon. Right? And so some time goes by and Onesimus is there with Paul. And either Onesimus decides he wants to go back. You know, I don't know if Onesimus had family there or like what's going on or or how it came about. But Onesimus um, is going back to Philemon. And Paul sends him with this handwritten letter uh, giving Philemon instructions. And I want to read it to you really quick because it makes a very, very important point, okay? Philemon, verse 8. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you what you ought to do. This is what Paul is saying to Philemon, okay? Onesimus' former owner. Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Through this word useless, he's basically referring to Onesimus's slavehood. Right? He's saying this is how you used to see him. But now he has become useful both to you and to me, 
I am sending him, Onesimus, who is my very heart to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. I love Paul's rhetoric. He's so good at uh, communicating things that need to be communicated. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would seem to be forced but not be voluntary. In other words, Philemon, I want to give you the opportunity to do the right thing. Not because I made you do it, even though I'm being very coercive in this conversation, but because you want to do it. It's a discipleship moment. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, but no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, who wouldn't consider Paul a partner, right? Everybody knew who he was and what he was doing. Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, so Onesimus might have run off with some stuff when he left. I'm not sure. He says, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this in my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention... Philemon, that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. I'm confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, I love this. Perhaps prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers, <laughs> which is a very nice way of saying, I'm going to be back to check on how this goes down. Do you see what Paul did there? There's this institution of slavery in this time period that is, that is not always an entirely evil thing. In this time period, like there were no suburbs where people bought a house. You had family land. And you lived on that family land. And when the father died, the oldest son took over and everybody else still lived there except the daughters who got married and took care of somebody else's family land. And so there weren't a lot of jobs for people to do and being a servant in a home was a very common way to make a living in a world where there were not many ways to make a living. But there were also people who were still in slavery. Right? And so Paul encountered... Onesimus, who had run away from Philemon, and Onesimus was in this slave situation, and what Paul did is he blew that up. He blew that up. He like dropped the mic on Onesimus is your brother. Treat Onesimus as you would treat me. Treat Onesimus as you would treat yourself. Right? And, there, and, and when you treat someone... Like Jesus treats them, there's no room for slavery. There's no room for abuse. Listen to Galatians chapter 3, 26. This is a passage you know. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, Neither slave nor free, 
nor there is, is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul says, look, in Christ all are redeemed. In Christ all are saved. All are equal. He says there's neither Jew or Greek. There's neither slave or free. There's not legal or illegal. There's not Afghani or American. Listen, God doesn't love you any more than he loved that guy holding on to the bottom of that C-17 that fell off in Afghanistan. You don't have any more favor than him. Because God loves the world. God sent his son to save the world. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's not illegal alien and legal citizen. We are all the same in God's eyes. So why don't we look the same? This is my second question. Why didn't God just make a world where everybody looked identical? Why aren't we all one race with one background? Because God's purpose, and God used human evolution to do this, was to bring about a diversity that reflects the creative beauty of God's person and nature. God did not want everyone to look the same. God did not want everyone to have the same background. Sometimes in this fight against racial injustice, I hear people say, we need to be colorblind, and that's a lie. God doesn't want anybody to be colorblind. That's called toleration. God wants us to be color celebrating. Celebrating, because we're not supposed to be the same. We're supposed to see another culture and say, that's not like me, but that is cool. I like that. I want some of that for myself. God wants diversity. We're not supposed to look and act the same. We have different ethnicities and different places of origin and different backgrounds and different personalities and different talents. And all of these things bring glory to God because they express His creativity and beauty. God didn't make us to be colorblind. He made us to celebrate the beauty of the differences between us. One of my favorite artists is Vincent van Gogh. Um, Dutch dude. Weird guy, uh, but I won't judge him. Um, but he made some of the most beautiful paintings. And one of the things that's really striking about Vincent van Gogh's paintings is, is the contrast between light and dark and how he's able to like just bring things out through color like light, you know? But it's the differences between those colors that make the painting beautiful. Wouldn't be beautiful if it was all the same. Wouldn't it be beautiful if all the colors were the same hue or the same tint? It's the contrast. It's the differences in the colors that make a painting vibrant. And in the same way, human beings display this same type of beauty in the contrast. Question number three, what color is God? Doesn't that seem like a silly question that doesn't need to be answered? But it does. It shouldn't need to be. But it does. 
You know how I know? You ever seen a white Jesus? Give me a break. Have you ever seen a white Jesus? <laughs> Every day. Every day. Man, I've been a part of big churches that are like, we want diversity up in this piece. But if you walk down the hallways, you see these white Jesuses, and you're like, those are symbols of oppression. You need to burn that crap. Guys, there's no room for a white Jesus. That white Jesus needs to die and not resurrect because it's not the real Jesus. White Jesus was created so that people of, from minority groups would look at that and see a superiority of the white class. But it's built on a lie. So what color is God? God is light, not white. In the past, people have confused that point. You know, in different passages, you know, in Revelation or, or Daniel where it talks about like depictions of God or God being light or God being bright, people are like, this means he was white. No, it doesn't. It means he's light. God is light, and within light is every color. Within light is a diversity of colors you and I don't even know. And I think that's what's being expressed, guys, is listen, God made us in his image, but he's, not, he's, he's like us, but not like us. He's like all of us. He's like the culmination of everything good in our world and then some stuff that we don't get that's better. God is all good. And he's light. He's not white. Well, what color is Jesus? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can sit up here and tell you what anthropologists say. You look like a Middle Eastern guy. probably look more like Bin Laden than you or me. But listen, it doesn't matter. The only reason Jesus had a race was because he had to be a human. Right? It doesn't matter. If we're asking what color Jesus was, we're asking the wrong question because his, his race had nothing to do with his purpose in saving the world. He could have been any race. Jesus had to become human, and asking his color is just, it's just the wrong question. But he was not white, okay? <laughs> we know that, okay? Um, how does God feel about racial prejudice is my next question. An obvious passage of Scripture is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. So here's what we know. Every human being was created with the dignity that being created in God's image affords them. The free will we have to choose. The reason that we're able to think with. These are all things that came from being created in God's image. It's what Satan alludes to when he's tempting Eve. Your ability to reason. Your ability to choose. These are things God has that God has given to you. And this call to be fruitful and to multiply uh, over the face of the earth and subdue it is a call for to, to racial diversity. When God called mankind to go out, he knew, he knew that, that, that skin pigmentation and evolution had everything to do with about where you lived in the world. Just human evolution. That part is absolutely true. 
And God created it that way. He said, go spread over over the face of the earth. And with that was a call to diversity and to change. Numbers chapter 12 is a good passage of scripture. I want you to follow along with this one if you can to find out how God feels about racial prejudice. And I'm going to read it to you, the whole thing, because it's worth it. Numbers chapter 12, verse 1 says this, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Okay, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, if you repeated something twice, it's because you really wanted it to be known. Okay, so it is a very big deal that Moses married a Cushite. Does anybody know what a Cushite was? Or who a Cushite was? An Ethiopian. Okay, so the issue here is Moses has married a woman from Ethiopia who doubtless has a black skin tone. Right? Miriam has, does not have much interaction with Cushites from, from more centralized Africa. Right? But she's blown away that Moses has married a Cushite, and she's mad about it. Sound like anything that happens around here? It sounds a lot like something that happens around here. So Miriam and Aaron start talking bad about Moses because his wife is a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Now they're casting doubt on his leadership, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. I love verse 3 because Moses wrote this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else in the face of the earth. It's like, all right, buddy, okay. All right. Now I've got to give you a little credit because God let that stay in there, but let's just be, let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. <laughs> At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. So God is like, just so you're questioning whether or not Moses is doing my will and who he has for a wife or otherwise, I just want you to know the answer is yes. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. Then the Lord replied to Moses, If her father, pay attention, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been disgraced for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought 
back. What is going on here? I'll tell you exactly what's going on here. God said, listen, Miriam, if you want to make somebody an outsider, maybe you should experience what it's like to be the outsider. There is nothing more isolating in the ancient world than leprosy. You had leprosy, you literally had to walk around telling everyone you had it if they couldn't already notice. You were the outcast of outcasts. And I, it's interesting that Miriam comes into the picture and she's upset at Moses for having a black wife and God gives her leprosy to give her a taste of what it feels like to be the person on the outside. And when Moses cries out for God to take away this disease, he says, look, if her father had spit in her face, she would be outside the camp for seven days. I want Miriam to know what this is like. So seven days from now, she can come in, and I bet she will have a different viewpoint on outsiders and what it means to be an outsider. God does not tolerate prejudice of any kind. In God's kingdom and purpose, there are no outsiders and there are no less thans, just those who know him and those who don't. But that's all in your and my hands. Nobody goes to hell, guys, except over Jesus' dead body. That decision lies with each person to choose. It has nothing to do with color of skin, background, socioeconomic status, none of those things. Because God doesn't tolerate it. So what is the answer in closing? So listen, I believe that the government has a role to play, okay? In stopping systematic racism, that has to come down by authority to change institutions that are built on racism. The government can and should make things right that the government has done wrong in the past. To black Americans, to Native Americans, to Asian Americans, and to Mexican or Latino immigrants. The government, in the situations where the government has done wrong, the government should make right on the wrongs done. The government can make policies and laws to keep us, all of us, from mistreating Hispanic and Latino immigrants. That happens all the time. It can help push our, 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 our nation toward equality. But none of these things will solve the heart of the problem. Because the real problem is inside of us. The real problem is in all of us. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. This is the verse you guys looked at in small groups this week. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, we should have tons, if any sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value all others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, 
did not consider equality with God something to be utilized to his advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness. Listen, racism is primarily a sin problem. It's primarily a sin problem. And because the world around us, the unbelieving world around us doesn't acknowledge sin, it can only address the symptoms of the problem. But it can't address the root. The root of racial prejudice is pride. The root of racial prejudice is selfishness. The root of racial prejudice is greed. These are the sins that cause us to mistreat people by race. But the root of unity is love. The root of unity is humility. The root of unity is generosity. You see, the kingdom mind, the kingdom life is in stark juxtaposition to the world's viewpoint and a prejudicial viewpoint. And here's the key, guys. Here's if you don't take away anything else. If you thought, that's so boring, I've been trying not to sleep the whole time, just take this one sentence home with you today. If we value all others above ourselves, not only will we be like Jesus, but we will never be racist or prejudiced toward anyone. When you put yourself last all the time, you can't be racist. You can't be prejudiced. When every person you and I encounter becomes an opportunity to serve and to be generous and to love, that solves the problem. So some days, guys, I'm so discouraged by what's going on in the world, I have to be like, look, I can't change the presidents. I can't change the government. I can't change everybody, but I can change me. And as far as it depends upon me, I'm going to put everyone above myself today. If I put everyone above myself today, then I won't get this wrong. The answer is to love one another, to have grace toward one another, to give preference toward one another. The battle against racism and racial prejudice won't be won by perpetuating violence and discrimination. It can't. Guys, violence breeds violence. Discrimination breeds discrimination. But the Bible teaches us, and I believe, that love and kindness breed love and kindness. By treating people the way Jesus did, we can show others the way forward. See, this battle is not going to be won by who hits the hardest. And don't hear me say that there's not a fight. I'm 100% behind peaceful protest. I'm 100% behind, especially people who have influence, using their influence to change things. That's what God expects from us. But the one better thing I can do is always treat people better than I treat myself and to always put Jesus first. And people will see that love, and that love is also contagious. That love changes things. 
and it's a witness to the world about who Jesus is. You see, we'll, we'll be fighting racism and sharing the gospel all at the same time. So when racism seems so complicated, you don't know what to do, just remember it starts with you. Finding satisfaction in Jesus. Because when I live in the love of God, I don't have to be first in line. And I don't have to try to put others at the back of the line. I can take the back of the line. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would help us in the world that we live in that can be very confusing to always know how you lived and how we can live like you've called us to live, to love others, to put others first. God, to use our influence to change the unhealthy things in our culture, God. I pray that our love would be a light to the world, your love for the world. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.